0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author, whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Walking can be boring, especially when you compare it to other activities like mountain climbing, skydiving, or even running. But as somebody has noted, walking, when done at the right pace and with regularity, can not only keep you healthy, it'll help you reach your intended destination. You know, it's interesting that in Genesis 17.1, we saw in our study of Abraham, that when Abraham was 99 years old, God appeared to him and said, Abraham, walk, not run, not gallop, but walk with me and be blameless before me. What does it mean to walk with God? We're going to find the answer to that question in the second half of the book of Ephesians, beginning with chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You know, every communicator has a pattern he follows most of the time in communication. You've been listening to me almost 17 years. That's hard to believe. But you probably picked up on a certain pattern that I tend to follow. I always begin with a question or a statement or a brief story intended to grab your attention. Not sure I've succeeded at that yet, but uh, that's what I try to do in the opening. Then state the thesis of the sermon, review what we saw last time, give the message, and then close with one or two applications for how this applies to us. That's my pattern. Well, the Apostle Paul had a pattern too you've picked up on if you've read his letters. Usually the first portion of his letter, he gives great doctrinal truth. But that doctrinal truth is always followed by practical application. You see that in his letter to the Christians at Rome. The first 11 chapters of Romans are the great doctrines of the faith, the depravity of man, the uh, blood atonement of Jesus Christ, salvation through grace, uh, the role of Israel in God's program. All of that is in chapters 1 through 11. But when he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, He says, I therefore beseech you that you present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. And the rest of the book is how you present yourself as a sacrifice to God. Well, the same thing is true in Ephesians. The book of Ephesians divides into two parts, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 through 6. In fact, I've given you on your outline an overview of Ephesians to help you notice the difference in these two sections. For example, Fill this in on your outline. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with doctrine, doctrine of predestination and adoption and all these other doctrines we looked at. But the second half of the book is about our duty as a Christian. The first half deals with precepts. The second half with practice. The first half of Ephesians deals with our riches from Christ, But then Paul is going to explain our responsibility to Christ. The first half of Ephesians is about our belief. Our second half of Ephesians is about our behavior. And then the first half of Ephesians, one way to look at it, is about our wealth from Christ. The second half is about our walk with Christ. And it's that word walk we find in the hinge verse between the first and second halves of Ephesians. It's a command that really is the explanation for the rest of the book. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That word worthy, axios in Greek, Martin Lloyd-Jones defines it as a being of equal weight. Walk in a way that is of equal weight to the calling with which you have been called. He says it refers to a balance scale. You can picture a balance scale with those two little trays on either side. If you put a five-pound weight on one side of the balance scale... To balance it out, you need something that weighs five pounds to keep it in equilibrium. Well, he's saying the same thing. When you look at what we have received, the wealth we have received from God, who we are, we've been chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed. That's weighty stuff. We need to walk in a way that is consistent with what we've received from Christ Jesus. I remember years ago, my eldest niece had graduated from high school, had already been accepted into the university. She was going to attend. She was an honors student, and our family was having dinner. And she said, well, I've got to go home early. I've got to study for my exam tomorrow. I said, your exam? You've already been accepted into the college of your choice. Why not just blow off the exam and stay here and have dinner with us? Great advice from Uncle Robert. Um She said, oh, Uncle Robert, I could never do that. Why, nobody but a dummy would make less than an A on this exam. She had been identified as a gifted student. She wanted to act in a way that was consistent with who she was. And that's what Paul is saying here. Given all that Christ has done for us, we need to behave. We need to walk in a way that is consistent with who we are in Christ. And that's the rest of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, about our walk as a Christian. Specifically, how our wealth from Christ should impact our morality, our purity. Then he's going to talk about how it ought to impact our family life, all the relationships in the family. And then Paul's going to conclude with showing how our wealth from Christ ought to impact our reaction to spiritual warfare, how it prepares us to do battle with the enemy. But the very first area Paul talks about is not morality. It's not about the family. It's not about spiritual warfare. Paul begins by discussing how our wealth from Christ should impact our relationship to other Christians in the church. And that's why he makes a call to unity in verses 2 to 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That may surprise you that Paul would talk about the church first of all. Why is Paul so concerned about how we behave in church? Well, granted, church isn't seen as a necessity in today's world. I mean, poll after poll shows how fewer and fewer Christians are attending church. Most polls indicate. The majority of Christians believe you can have a vibrant relationship with God apart from any involvement in a church, but the Word of God says otherwise. Remember in Hebrews 10, the writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. They were living in an ungodly world, these Hebrew Christians, and he said, hold on to your faith. How do you hold on to your faith? Well, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. If you want to hold fast to your faith, don't fall into the habit of not assembling together, which has become the habit of some, this writer says, but instead encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. That word means provoke. Picture a fireplace with a number of burning pieces of charcoal in that fireplace, all burning with a white or a a bright orange glow. What happens if you take one of those pieces of charcoal out of the fire and put it by itself? It quickly turns to a cold, steely gray color. It loses its temperature. It becomes nothing but a cold piece of coal. That's exactly what happens with Christians When you separate them from other Christians, together they ignite one another. They provoke one another in the best sense of the word. But separate them and they lose their heat. They lose their fervor. And it becomes a habit for people not coming to church. And they suffer the spiritual fallout from doing so. I was recently talking to our former president and he asked me about how I felt about the state of Christianity in America. And then he asked a very perceptive question. He said, what effect do you think COVID had on Christianity in the country? I said, not a good one. Uh, COVID separated Christians from other Christians, and many Christians have kept up the habit of not coming to church. I don't think it's any coincidence that you see record number of people who once identified as Christians now identifying as nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Uh, not as believers of any kind. You see more and more Christians surrendering basic doctrines they held as believers. That's what happens when Christians are not under the teaching of God's Word and when they don't receive the spiritual encouragement that comes from other Christians. The church is vital. That's why Paul mentions it first. He talks about the importance of unity. There are two reasons why Unity in the church is essential. First of all, the church serves as Christ's representative in the world. Paul talks about the church being the body of Christ. Christ is the head, but we are his body. And we are the only part of Christ that most unbelievers will ever see. Notice in Ephesians 3:10, remember Paul said, "so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through what?" The church. It's through the church that the wisdom of God is made known in the world. Or remember the benediction we saw in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, through the church, and through Christ Jesus to all generations. The church is Christ's representative. That's why it is so important I don't agree with everything Paul Billheimer wrote, but he was dead on accurate when he said, the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. Let me illustrate that for you because it's so true. How many of you know of somebody who used to attend church who no longer attends church because of some hurt they experienced in the church or because of some fight that was going on in their church? How many of you know somebody like that? Look around. Just about everybody. That's Satan's master strategy to alienate people from the church, to isolate them from other Christians, and then to attack them. Brennan Manning said... The greatest single cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny Him with their lifestyle. That's why an unbelieving world simply is unbelievable. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. People are turned off to Christianity, especially when they see the bride of Christ being bruised and battered in church fights. It's a serious issue, and the Bible says that's why we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. The church is Christ's representative. You know, when people see the church bickering and fighting and backbiting, you know what the average person thinks? Says, I can get that at work Monday through Friday. I can get that in my own home. Why do I need to come to a church to experience that? The church is Christ's representative in the world. Secondly, the church is important because the Christian source of energy in the world is the church. The church is the Christian source of energy in the world. That's where Christians come to recharge their spiritual batteries And if you alienate people from the church, they wither up and they die in their faith. You know, it's interesting. In Proverbs chapter 6, God gives a list of the seven things he hates the most. You know what the climactic thing that writer mentions is? Those who sow discord among the brethren. God absolutely hates people who caused disunity in the church and ruined the witness of Christianity and destroyed the power source of people from the church by alienating them from the church. He hates that. And I wanna tell you, I've been a pastor for more than 40 years. I've seen God deal very harshly with people who cause disunity in the church. He doesn't put up with it because it is his body, the body of Christ in the church and of all the things you may choose to do, don't ever be guilty of sowing discourse, discord in the body of Christ. It has a severe judgment attached to it because the church is the body of Christ. Well, it's so, If it's so important, Pastor, how do we preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace? Notice the four ingredients of unity. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another and love. Let's unpack those words real quickly. First of all, the word humility. If we're going to be unified, we have to practice humility. It's interesting, in Paul's day, humility was not a virtue, it was a vice. It was thought to be weakness, to be humble. In fact, there was no word that really Paul could choose from the Greek language, so he had to coin a term that means to put ahead of yourself. That's what humility is, to put something or someone ahead of your own interest. Somebody said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And that's what Jesus demonstrated for us. The perfect example of humility is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to grasp, but he emptied himself." He wasn't looking out for his interest. His interest would be to stay in heaven and enjoy the privileges of being the son of God. But he put our need above his interest by dying for us. That's what humility is. And then he mentions gentleness. The word translated gentleness actually is sometimes translated meekness. Now, we absolutely hate that word, meekness, because of what it rhymes with. What does it rhyme with? Weakness, who wants to be weak, meek? But that's not what the word means. The word translated gentleness or meekness is a word that refers to a powerful horse that has been broken by its trainer. The horse is still powerful, but it's power under control. And that's what meekness is. It's strength under control. It means when you're in an argument with somebody, and you've got that one zinger line you want to deliver to tear that person apart, you're about to say it, but then something gets the better of you. Hopefully the Holy Spirit of God and you choose not to use that zinger you've been waiting to use. That's meekness. Somebody has said, if you think acting meek is weak, just try doing it for a week. It's difficult to do, but it's essential for unity. And then thirdly, he says, with patience, macro thumia, macro, long, uh, thumia, temper. To be patient means to be long-tempered. John MacArthur says it means to have a long fuse, not a short fuse. Christendom said, it is a word which is used of a man who is wronged and easily has it in his power to avenge himself, but never does it have a long fuse. And fourthly, forbearance, tolerance, showing tolerance for one another in love. This goes beyond not just retaliating against somebody. It means letting go of that offense that has been committed against you, not paying back evil for evil, It means giving up your right to hurt that other person for hurting you. That's forgiveness. Remember at the end of this chapter, Ephesians 4.32, Paul will say, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. God gave up his right to punish us by forgiving us. We need to extend that same forgiveness to others as well. These are the ingredients of unity. What are the catalysts for unity? Why should I be concerned about this? Paul gives a seven-fold answer to that question. And notice the repetition of the word one, beginning in verse 4. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. Let's look at those very quickly. He said, the reason we're to work toward unity is there is one body. There's one body of Christ, not several bodies of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul said, for the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the body, members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so is the body of Christ. That's why you Christians are to be one. There is one body. Secondly, there is one spirit. How did we become a part of the one body? Through one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For with one spirit, one Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, look, there is one Holy Spirit. He works different ways in different people's lives to do different things, but he never fights against himself. He's never at war with himself. There is one spirit, Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer in this room. That's why we ought to be unified. And then thirdly, he says, there's one hope. There it is again, one. One hope of your calling. What is the hope, the one hope of every Christian? Titus 2.13 says, it's the blessed hope of Christ appearing. That is the one hope we have. Now, is he talking about Christ appearing at the rapture, or is he appearing at his second coming seven years later? Yes, yes. He's talking about both. He's talking about the hope for Christians is when he appears to snatch us away, to take us to be with him forever, if we're alive at that time. And he's talking about seven years later when Christ comes with believers and everyone shall see him. That is our one hope, that this world isn't going to stay the way it is, that Christ is coming back to redeem us and recreate this world as he originally intended. There's one hope. Not only that, there is one Lord You see, we have all the members of the Trinity involved in this passage. There is one Spirit, and there is one Lord. That's referring to Jesus Christ. There's just one Jesus, not many Jesuses. There is one Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody say, Well, the Jesus I serve would never listen to rap music or drive a Mercedes Benz. The Jesus I serve would never vote for or fill in the blank. The Jesus I serve would never send somebody to hell for not believing in him for salvation. The Jesus I serve. Well, they're right. The Jesus they serve wouldn't do that because the Jesus they serve is not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus they've created in their own mind who looks remarkably like them. A lot of Christians have created Jesus in their own image. No, there are not many Jesuses. There's one Jesus, and he's the Jesus of the Scripture. Not only that, not only is there one Lord, there's one faith. There's one faith. You say, how can that be? There are many different faiths. There are millions of, or thousands of religions in the world. How do you, can you say there's one faith? Well, there's only one faith that leads to salvation. It's faith in Jesus Christ. In writing about this passage, Dr. Criswell tells the story of a time he went to Africa, and a missionary was taking him on a tour of several villages, and they came into a village that had been devastated by smallpox. And the missionary pointed to the roofs of the thatched huts, and there were brooms on the top of all of these thatched huts. And Dr. Criswell asked, what are those brooms? And he said, those brooms represent a family that has been hit by smallpox. And with the broom, that's a symbol of shooing away the demons of smallpox. And that's how they deal with smallpox. They just get the broom and shovel out the demon of smallpox. Well, Louis Pasteur had a different way to deal with smallpox. He said smallpox is a bacterium that needs to be vaccinated against. Now, both Louis Pasteur and these Africans were sincere in their belief. They thought what they were doing was the right way to deal with a deadly disease, but only one of them was right. It's the same way with eternal life. There are a lot of faiths that say, if you want to be right with God, do this, do this, do this, do this. People who follow those religions are sincere but they're sincerely wrong. There's only one way to deal with the deadly disease of sin, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me." Now have you noticed how Paul is building, building, building? He said, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, and here's the climax, or next to the climax, there is one baptism. There are not many baptisms of the Holy Spirit. There is one baptized baptism. There are people right now who say, well, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit when I was saved, but I'm waiting for that second baptism. You're going to be waiting a long time. Because there is no second or third or fourth baptism. When you trusted in Christ as your Savior, you received all of the Holy Spirit you need for godliness and power in your life. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't get all of you (laughs) when he baptizes you. That's a continual process. We'll see in Ephesians, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. But we have all of the Spirit. And then finally, the climax, there is one God. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. One God. That was the most basic teaching of Judaism. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And just as it is impossible to divide God, so it should be impossible to divide Christians in a church. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. Now, it would be real easy to shut our Bibles at this point, to close our eyes, to join hands and sing a chorus of kumbaya as we meditate on being unified. But notice what Paul said. Unity in a church doesn't come automatically, and it doesn't stay automatically. We have to be diligent. We have to work at it. That's why he says, be diligent to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. I'm going to suggest five things. If every member of First Baptist Church Dallas would do, including the pastor, we would continue the unity we now enjoy. We enjoy a great unity in our church. How do we preserve that unity, if Paul says? Jot these down. Commitments I hope you'll consider making. Number one, I will refrain from criticizing any member of this church without first going to him privately. If you have something against somebody, you and I have the obligation to talk to them privately. Secondly, I will refuse to engage in gossip about other believers in the church. By the way, gossip can be misinformation, but gossip can be truth as well. Sharing things that are true about a situation of which you are neither part of the problem or part of the solution. That's what gossip is. Sharing information needlessly. Thirdly, I will resist sharing confidential information that's been entrusted to me. That's especially important for leaders in the church to keep confidences. Number four, I will remember that the church's progress is more important than my preferences. That is so key. Remember that the church's progress in wanting people to Christ and equipping believers, that's more important than our individual preferences. I know you're going to be shocked by this, but I have an opinion about just about everything. And I have an opinion about just about everything. I'm just going to leave it at that. If this church were run according to my preferences, it would look a lot different than it does right now. But I realize my preferences don't automatically come from God. They're just that, they're opinions, they're preferences. More important than my preference is the progress of the church. And number five, I'll recommit to loving rather than condemning fellow Christians. I will recommit to loving rather than condemning fellow Christians. Now, can I apply this to a very real situation going on in our church right now? And you may, some of you are already aware of this, but there's a great controversy going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now about the role of women in the church. Same controversy that has swept through other mainline denominations, and it's going on through our convention. And there are some who would say that because men and women are equal before Christ, which they are, then a woman ought to be able to do anything and fulfill any role that a man does in the church. Now, that is unbiblical. The Bible says that the role of pastor and the role of deacon are to be reserved for men, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the husband of one wife. So that's wrong to say that they are free to do anything in the church. But there's an equally lethal extreme that says women can't do anything in the church. Their role is to stay at home, keep house, and mostly keep quiet. That is equally unbiblical. God does call women to ministry. There are many other things they can do besides being a pastor and a deacon. God calls some women to work over women's ministry. He calls some to work with children. We've got a wonderful children's minister who's coming out here in just a minute. She's been called by God to do what she does. Some are called to be missionaries. And we ought to recognize their call, not to the pastoral role, but in other areas of ministry. They are just as called as I am to do what I do. While our leaders in the church have been grappling for some time, especially in light of all of the controversy going on in our denomination about how to adopt a policy that is faithful, most importantly, to Scripture and to our history as a church. And so, we've been working on a document. We have consulted some of the finest New Testament scholars in our church. What we're doing is patterned after two of the most conservative churches in our convention, And we have something that balances the absolute truth that only men can serve as pastors and deacons with the truth that God calls women to ministry as well and a way to recognize and honor those women. And it's going to be presented to the deacons Tuesday night to be voted on, and you'll be informed about it as well. But before the document was even finished, before it was started all kind of rumors started going through a little group in the church about what was coming up. And nobody had seen the document yet, but they were forming opposition to it. And people said, well, you know, they're going to start with commissioning women, but it won't end there. It's going to be a slippery slope. Next thing, they'll be ordaining women, and then we'll have women preaching in the pulpit. And then we're going to hire a full-time women's pastor to preach occasionally. And then you know where it's going. Amy's going to end up as co-pastor of the church. Give me a break, (laughs) give me a break. I've been your pastor for nearly 17 years. Have I ever done anything in the past to make you think I'm gonna do something radical or unbiblical? Mike Huckabee just recently said about me, he said, Robert Jeffers is the most unwoke pastor in America today. And I wear that badge with pride. Don't worry, don't worry. It's all going to work out fine. And as far as the slippery slope, let me remind you of this. You'll never be in danger of sliding down a slippery slope as long as your feet are firmly planted on the Word of God. And as your pastor, I guarantee you, we're going to stay rooted on the unchangeable, unwavering truth of God's Word. That's our commitment. I was in Tennessee this week at the National Religious Broadcasters, and I was reminded of the story of Andrew Jackson. Remember Andrew Jackson? He was the seventh president of the United States, but before that, he was the major general in the Tennessee militia. And during the War of 1812, the troops that were under Jackson's command started fighting and bickering and losing, and morale was at an all-time low when Jackson called his men together and said, men, remember this, the enemy is over there. As Christians, we need to remember the enemy is not fellow Christians, certainly not in this body. We are united. We love one another The enemy is on the outside. The enemy is our adversary, the devil, who seeks to alienate people from the church, isolate Christians from one another, and then attack and destroy them. We can't let him succeed. We have a wonderful unity in this church that we've enjoyed for more than two decades. This church is unified. Let's be diligent to preserve that unity of spirit. In the bond of peace. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. The only way you'll ever be at peace with yourself or with other people is to, first of all, be at peace with God. And that's what becoming a Christian is all about, to know that your sins have been forgiven. And today, if you would like to receive the forgiveness that Christ offers you, I invite you, wherever you are, to pray this prayer in your heart, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, to save me from my sins. Thank you for loving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.